Amen. Amen. Again, we're in Mark 6. We're working from verse 1 through 13. 1 through 13 today. Well, in 1547, Calvin, John Calvin, came to his pulpit in Geneva, ready to preach, and on his pulpit was a death threat, um, a letter from someone uh, threatening to kill him, kill him quick. It was traced by the authorities to a man named Jacques Groot, and he was a former clergyman in the in the Catholic Church, and he um, he kind of denied that it was him. Uh, they searched his house. They found some paperwork that some writings, some books that were very anti-Christian. And then, you know, in good kind of late medieval, not quite medieval, but fashion, they tortured him. Um, and in the torturing, he admitted that he wrote the the death threat from John Calvin, put it on his pulpit. Well, when he admitted that he had threatened to kill a local pastor, they he was actually put to death. Um, and, and later his house was searched and they found more in the, in the rafters of the house. They found more writing, more, we would call it like manifesto-y writing where he's kind of spitting on Jesus. He's spitting on the cross. He's saying that, um, Jesus was just jealous for glory. So he made up a, it's very anti-Christian and, and demonic for lack of better words. Well, what they found when they started to study his writings is that it seemed that there was um, as much about hating Christ as there was hating Calvin. And um, he, he, Calvin was a, John Calvin was a strong personality. God uses strong personalities sometimes to break through some chaos. Um, so if you can imagine the stubbornness, the sharpness, the wittiness that Calvin carried. And so, you, I don't know, he made a few enemies. And, um, and this guy didn't just, he wasn't just an atheist who was anti-Christian. He hated Calvin deeply. I was reading this week um, in, a, in a book by a historian named Alec Ryrie who traces what he calls um, an emotional history, essentially an emotional history of unbelief. And what he tries to show in this book is that many of us, when we think about the rise of atheism in modern society, we typically go to the philosophers like David Hume. Uh, we go to Nietzsche saying, God is dead and we killed him. And, and we think of the philosophers in the Enlightenment period as being kind of the spearhead that birthed atheism. But in this text, in this book, Ryrie is trying to show that, that atheism actually really began to take root in societies far before the philosophers came to rise. And it came to take root because people were frustrated with religious leaders like John Calvin. And what he's trying to argue in the entirety of the book is that unbelief, unbelief is not merely an intellectual a reasoning, a logic, a place that someone achieves in their minds. But just like when, how many of us came to faith at rock bottom, you were tired, you were desperate, maybe you were going to jail and you came to faith in this place of desperation and you began to cry out to God, you had some kind of encounter and your life was changed. Oftentimes the other side, atheism will say to Christians, you just had an emotional experience. But in the book, Ryrie is trying to show that the, 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 the table spins both ways. That there are many who are bound in unbelief, and unbelief is not always a matter of the mind. It's oftentimes a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And in our text today, we're going to find that that Jesus has just raised a dead girl. The, remember, Jairus was the, the head of the synagogue. He was famous in town. Everyone knew him. His daughter was dead. Jesus told her to get up, and she got up. He's raising dead girls. Yet he's going to go into Nazareth, his hometown, and he's going to be met with incredible unbelief. Logically speaking, 
raise dead people, I'm, I might be paying attention. But envy and, and, and spite and there's just several texts in the New Testament I want to read to you quickly that, that show this, this nuance being fleshed out. John 12 verse 27. Listen to this one. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, Jesus prayed. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and they said that it's thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Even when a voice from heaven speaks, unbelief says, thunder. And remember this one, this is, this is just a good theology, a kind of a doctrine of unbelief I'm trying to hash out for you. Luke 16, verse 27 through 31, this is where Jesus is telling the story about Lazarus and the rich man. Do you remember the rich man in, in Abraham's bosom? And the rich man wants to cross, ask for Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and touch his tongue. Verse 27 of that story, he said, I beg you, this is the rich man speaking, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. If someone rises from the dead, then they'll, they'll know and repent. And he says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. I don't know. It's like maybe Jesus knew he was going to get up from the grave in a few short hours. Unbelief, again, is not always a matter of evidence. It's not always a matter of reasoning, philosophical arguments, or historical account. Unbelief can be wildly emotional and stubborn. And it can come from bitterness. It can come from envy and spite. And the way that we live and address it, we, we can't live in such a way that says, every time we come to an unbeliever, I'm going to unravel for you my latest apologetic text and make a solid argument from why Jesus got up from the grave. Sometimes there is sincere unbelief, sincere problems with ideas that can be talked to and reasoned through. Other times, unbelief is so deeply rooted in emotion and stubborn bitterness that you've, you've got to know that you're, you're not going to win every encounter. Now, what I want to show you today, and I'm letting all the points fly out before we get there to the text, but what I want to show you today is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 is getting ready, we'll read this next week, to send the apostles out for the first time. They're going to become fishers of men, right? So far in Mark's gospel, all the apostles have done is watched, walked with Jesus, heard, watched him raise the dead, watched him cast out demons. But in the next passage, Jesus is going to say to the apostles, I give you authority, go. They're getting ready to go. But before Jesus sends them to go, he takes them home and he makes them walk with him to Nazareth and he makes the disciples watch him be rejected by his hometown, his own family, the people he went to high school with, so to speak. He makes them watch for what for us would be a great embarrassment, 
right? To go to your hometown and to be mocked and spit on. He makes them watch him reject it. Why? Why? He's trying to show the disciples that even with great miracles and powers and good preaching and argumentation, you will still be spit on. And you can't carry this gospel with hopes of being received by your hometown, your family, with hopes of being received by the crowds with a praise and applause. They're not going to think the world of you. Some of them are going to call you um, ignorant. Some of them are going to call you dumb. Some of them are going to call you hyper-religious. Holy rolling, come on. Miss Linda was a little holy rolling. We know, I'm just teasing. (laughs) You're going to be mocked as you carry the gospel. And Jesus is saying to the apostles, he's going to say when he sends them out, and when they don't receive you, knock off your shoes. Shake off the dust. What's he showing them? Again, that everything is not going to be wild acceptance. Sometimes you're going to be greatly spit on and you have to carry the gospel anyway. Anyway, let me read you the text. Mark 6, starting in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. At him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6 And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, again, remember that in the last two chapters of Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus calm a raging, violent, demonic storm just by telling the thing to sit down. We've seen Jesus cast out thousands of demons, the most demonized local man living in tombs, cutting himself, the most demonized person you could imagine. Jesus just cast those demons out. We watched Jesus heal a woman who was totally poor because she spent all her money on physicians, hoping that the physicians could heal her issue of blood. Uh, some kind of menstrual problem where she bled for 12 years straight. She just touched the fringe of Jesus' garment. He didn't even pray for her, speak anything. He just touched his little garment, and she's radically healed. And then we saw Jesus walk into the room with three of his disciples and the parents of a dead girl and say to the dead girl, get up, and then say to the parents, feed the girl. We've seen Jesus just with success after success after success. And you would think that communities that are expecting Messiah, who would bear our diseases, who would bring healing, who would cause the lame to walk, you would expect those communities to say, hey, maybe these signs, these consistent victories, miraculous works should point us to pay attention to this man. You would think. After this series of successful events, Jesus leaves Capernaum Again, he's preparing to send out the 12, but first he takes them to Nazareth. Nazareth from Capernaum is about a 25-mile walk. I don't know about you, and I'm like walking that far. Somebody get me a scooter, a Vespa, so to speak. 
historically speaking, Nazareth is very insignificant, almost never mentioned um, in, in, in any kind of extra biblical literature. It's very rare um, that Nazareth is spoken of. It is spoken of a few times. But what we learned from history is that Nazareth is a really small, insignificant city. It's not birthing the next great artists or philosophers or, or political leaders. It's just kind of this podunk town. Never been the center of greatness. But this small, rural, intimate, kind of podunk city, they knew Jesus better than anyone. There is something about, I don't, I know this is strange to say out loud, but I think you'll agree with me. There is something about the human condition that has some kind of strange attachment to the place where you were raised. I don't know what it is. I think it may be that the people in your own town saw you in the most vulnerable states. They watched you make decisions about who you wanted to be one day. They saw your pimples. And, and something in all of us, I think, rises up and kind of says back to our hometown, I, I'm, I am going to make something of myself. I'm going to be something. And there's something very sociological about, um, forgive me for forgetting, this feels silly to say out loud, but about high school too, where you're, how many movies are there about high school reunions, right? Why is that a thing? There, there's something, there's something very competitive in your youth years as you're developing, where you kind of look around at your peers and you're trying to keep up. You're trying to show that you're, you're just as smart. You're just as, as sharp. You're just as able. And, and there's, this is something intimate and strange and mysterious about the place where you were raised. Now, Jesus is the son of God. And knows full well his identity and his father's love. And so I don't think that Jesus feels the same insecurity going to the high school reunion as you and I do. I remember when my 10-year high school reunion thing came and I, I said, billions. You could pay me billions and I would not go to that. Um, he doesn't feel the same kind of insecurity. But I do think that Jesus in his humanity has friendships, people he grew up around, relationships. I think in his humanity, he's, I think he knows he's going to be rejecting, rejected, but I think he would hope for relational connections. And so he, he takes his disciples and he strolls into the synagogue. Now, as he comes into the synagogue, obviously the head of the synagogue has heard of him, has recognized his teaching gift because the head of the synagogue invites him to come up and to teach. And Jesus in his home synagogue in Nazareth, he begins to teach. Now, as he teaches, like half the crowd is rolling their eyes. And they begin to murmur to one another. They begin to bicker. And they say, where's this man? Where does he learn these things? They say, how, where did he get this power so that he lays his hands on sick people and they're healed? Now, there's some suggestion in commentary and scholarship that they're actually accusing Jesus of receiving some kind of dark or pagan power that he's now able to lay his hands on. So they're saying, like, we know he didn't go to seminary. We know he didn't go to seminary. Where did he go get these powers and, and get this teaching? You f follow the line of accusation. Now, they begin to say, is this not the carpenter? One, it's obvious that Jesus was a local artisan. It's obvious that Jesus, carpenters in the day, um, 
if you think Palestine, Israel, there's, there's as much stone as there is wood. Carpenters of the day would have dealt with some stone, masonry work. They would have dealt with, I know, I think we all like to think of Jesus in his garage, like making beautiful furniture, which, which maybe he did, maybe. Um, but most likely it was oftentimes he was doing kind of brickwork. Um, and was, there's actually some church history. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence for this thought, but there's some early church history that says that Jesus built plows, that he was doing woodwork, building plows for people to farm with, which kind of makes sense in an agricultural society. Um, but they begin to say, isn't that the carpenter? Didn't he build your plow? Didn't he, you know, maybe he made your table. And, and the logic is going, he's not better than us. Who does he think he is? Not above us. And isn't his mother Mary? We know Mary. And then they list his four brothers and his sisters. So we know Jesus had at least six siblings, half siblings, obviously. He had four brothers and sisters, plural. So that means two, at least two, maybe more. And we find in the other gospels that these siblings all rejected Jesus for the entirety of his earthly ministry. They came to faith after the resurrection But throughout his earthly ministry, they totally reject, mocked, accused Jesus of being insane. Now, imagine this again, hometown reunion. Jesus standing up to teach in the synagogue, healing, deliverance, calming storms, victory after victory after victory. And the apostles are a little bit hype on this guy, right? The apostles are like, he's incredible. And the whole crowd starts to mock him. And put yourself in the apostle's shoes again. You're going like, what? It's like like Bono going to his high school and everyone's spitting on him. The, the, the apostles are going, what logical reason would lead you to denounce this man? What? And they're just watching. And, and, and more slander and more accusation and more rejection. It's just laid upon Jesus and laid upon Jesus. And laid upon Jesus. And what we get from the passage is this idea that Jesus laid his hands on just a few sick people and healed them. So we kind of get the idea that Jesus came out in public and was prepared to heal the sick, but nobody came. Now, he's just walked through Capernaum. And you remember, the crowds are pressing him. He's got a lady who's been bleeding for 12 years, just hoping to grab the fringe of his garment. People are chasing him everywhere he goes. But he walks into his hometown there's some setting in which he's prepared to heal the sick and, and just only just a few come. No one comes. Now, Jesus says this, this, this line is seen throughout, um, all kind of religious texts and philosophers used to say this, but Jesus says, um, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household, he said, among his own family. This kind of maxim, again, is seen throughout antiquity. And then the text says, this is kind of the kicker. They took offense at him. They took offense at him. Their unbelief was not rational. It was not birthed from logic. It was not birthed from argumentation. It wasn't perfectly calm, cool, and collected and honest. Their unbelief was birthed from offense. Their unbelief is petty, envious, 
emotional. You can imagine that some of them have experienced their own rejection. And oftentimes people who've experienced a lot of rejection, they're very quick to judge and cast others aside to try to feel a little better about themselves. They're allowing their hurt and their bitterness to fuel their rejection of Jesus, whether it's logical or not. And again, just bear in your mind that Jesus is making the apostles watch. Making the apostles watch. Now, the conclusion of this paragraph is actually highly controversial. It has become for many what you would call a proof text. Everyone say proof text. Proof proof text is the idea of you get one line of scripture, then you try to build an entire doctrine of it, even if the rest of the scripture kind of disagrees with your interpretation. Does that make sense? You grab a little piece and you don't build your doctrine off the whole of scripture, you build your doctrine off this little piece that you're interpreting in light of the way that you like to interpret it. But it says that Jesus was not able to do many miracles there. And what that's birthed in, in a lot of Pentecostal movements, um, word of faith movements, is the idea that there is some kind of spiritual um, economy in which Jesus cannot perform miracles unless there's faith in the atmosphere. And I just want to say to you really quick, that is like borderline heretical. Um, Jesus is able to do whatever Jesus wants to do. That's called omnipotence. Omnipotence. Now, Jesus is unwilling to do some things. And Jesus is, in this situation too, obeying perfectly the Father's will. And so we don't want to think about, I'm sorry to get a little bit doctrinal for a second, but I think it's helpful. We don't want to use this text as an opportunity to say to people, the reason you weren't healed from your disease is because you didn't believe enough. And, and I've heard people say to, to even young people, there, you thought you were healed, but you, you didn't keep your healing because you didn't believe enough. And, and that, that bad line of logic actually begins to accuse people. And I think a lot of folks are like, I don't know what else to do. Like, stir it up. Like, do, what do I have to do? Like, hit myself in the stomach to feel like I believe more? There's, there's this weird, it, 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 forgive me for saying this, it's almost pagan. It's almost a pagan interaction of you've got to stir up your thoughts to think better before you can have healing. And I just want to say to you that Jesus, Jesus is able to do whatever Jesus wants to do, number one. And number, number two, Jesus does love faith. He does. There's, there's a balance there. He does want people to come to him in faith. He wants our faith and expectation to rise. He does love faith. But when people come to him and say, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Jesus says, okay, that'll do, donkey. You, you kind of get the idea? It's like anyone who comes and says, I'm really struggling in my heart to believe, but I want to believe, Jesus, would you help me believe? Jesus says, of course I will. Of course I will. The idea is not that you, you lack the ability to stir yourself up enough and hold your mouth the right way and grit your teeth and able to receive, to receive a healing. The idea is that Jesus is looking for those who are so desperate and humble, and sincere, and hungry that they'll come to him and ask. So the thorough logic of the text is that when he called the kind of healing crusade, if you will, no one came and asked. And it's not, again, that Jesus was unable to, because Jesus is healing people who just touch him. It's that Jesus is unwilling to force himself upon those who've embraced unbelief. Unwilling. He responds to faith. And now, I want to show you this. The text reads that Jesus 
marveled at their unbelief. Now, for the entirety of the gospel, Jesus has been marveled at. Okay? He's telling the storm to stop, and all the disciples are going, right? Like, who is that? He's casting out demons, and the crowds are coming out to see him. Remember we read in Mark chapter 4, they came from the farmland and from the city. they just pouring everywhere to marvel at him. Who is this? There's awe and fear and wonder and terror. Who is this man? He's been marveled at for the entirety of the gospel. Now he goes to Nazareth, sees such staunch, hard-hearted, emotional, unlogical unbelief, and Jesus stares at it and says, Oh, what is that? What kind of unbelief is that? No one throws themselves at Jesus' feet. No one comes to grab the edge of his garment. No one comes to get him to come pray for their mother-in-law or come pray for their daughter who's sick. He's totally ignored. People kind of turn their other head the other way when he's, you know, even even women who he grew up in the community and he used to play around their house, he comes and tries to wave and they just, don't look at him. Don't look at him. He's totally ignored. Unwelcome in his own home. Now, to wrap this up, Seth, you guys can start making your way up. Again, the conclusion, the idea here is, is that Jesus is going to make his disciples watch the most kind of humiliating moment of human existence, being totally mocked and spit on. You notice Jesus said they rejected in his hometown, in his own home, and among his own family. Jesus did a little try thing there. He made the disciples watch him be mocked and rejected by his own little brothers. He made them watch as people turned their head, spit on him, and then he's going to say to them in the next passage, as he gets ready to send them out, you're going to be hated. Congratulations, you just got elevated to the place of hatred. There's a part of, gosh, I don't want to go too far down this road. Um, I'm preparing to teach her some other things not here at the church, and I've got stuff on my mind. There's a, there's a part of the cross of Jesus some of us, we, we did the, you remember around the Toronto era and the idea of the father's love and the father's blessing. Do you guys remember what I'm talking about? The idea was like that the church needed to recover the concept of adoption, that we're fully father's sons and daughters, that father fully loves us. He fully adores us. And it was really good. A lot of us, I think, received healing by embracing the side of the cross that brought us to blessing and favor and acceptance by the father. There's a side of the cross that brings for me this adoption and forgiveness and life and joy, unspeakable joy. There's a side of the cross that's so beautiful and redemptive and blesses me radically. Then we don't like to talk about the fact that there's this other side which calls you to die, which calls you to carry your own cross. So I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting ready to teach again for something else. And I'm thinking about Paul saying things like in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but he who lives in me. I've been dead. And then Paul saying at the end in Galatians 6, I'm crucified to the world. The world's crucified to me. And then Paul saying over and over, I'm a slave to Christ. The end of Ephesians, Paul says, I'm an ambassador in chains. So there's a part of our identity that's like son or daughter, fully loved, blessed, favored. You guys know the things, the head and not the tail. All of these ideas 
And then there's the side of the cross also that says, oh, by the way, I'm actually calling you to death, to rejection, to persevering through suffering. Paul said that he wants to share in the fellowship of Christ Jesus' suffering. There's a part of the cross that invites me to share in suffering, to preach the gospel even when I'm mocked, even when I'm hated, even when I'm spit on. If you come to church and hope to be successful in the community and adored by all those who reject Jesus, you're crazy. You're wildly crazy. Coming to Christ comes with reproach. It comes with when Paul says, gosh, I'm going to go Leonard Ravenhill. He used to talk about this all the time. When Paul says, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, crucifixions were long, number one. Crucifixions were bloody, number two. Crucifixions, all kind of bodily excrements flow from a person. There were birds that were ready to pluck the eyes out of the person being sacrificed. When you saw a crucifixion, you turned your head with disgust. Paul says, that's actually how the world looks at me. I'm crucified to them. When they see me, they're disgusted. I look to them like a bloody man ready to be devoured by pest. And then Paul says, and actually, when I look at the world, I feel the same disgust. I I feel the same kind of, why would you possibly turn away from Jesus? For what? The cross calls us to embrace rejection. And Jesus calls us in the text, along with the apostles, to watch a a very humiliating, vulnerable scenario where his younger brothers and sisters, his relatives, his hometown, people he grew up with, turn their face and say, we refuse to believe. Bring all the logic in the world. We've got enough bitterness to, to shut you down. Two, is there a chance that some of us in the room haven't come to Christ And you claim to have intellectual reasons, but in reality, you are bound by bitterness, resentment. Is there a chance that you prayed for your, maybe you prayed for your mother to be healed of cancer and it didn't happen. And so you began to confess unbelief. And the issue is not really that your logic changed. The issue is that your heart grew bitter and you didn't understand the mysteries of God. Is there a chance that some of us had marriages that fell apart and you felt like God promised that he was going to bless it and it fell apart and tore to pieces. So you kind of turn your face from anything that looks like faith because you feel like God betrayed you. Is there emotion underneath the unbelief? Many men shoot straight. Many men who have seen combat come back with unbelief because they will say in their hearts, there's no way that there's a God who allowed this to happen. No, it's not logical. You could argue back like no way that God allowed humanity to have the ability to destroy each other. I don't know. He gave them some kind of free will. But but the problem is, again, it's not logic. It's hurt, bitterness, resentment, envy, sometimes petty envy, very petty envy. Is there a chance that you're carrying some of that? And maybe today's the day where you can kind of open your hands and allow the spirit to begin to minister to the place in your soul It's tripled. Three, church, let me say this to to us. And Pastor Brad, if you want to come and get ready to serve us communion, let me say this to us quickly. 
one, we want to grow in faith. We want to grow in expectation. We want to grow and lean in to see Jesus do many miracles in our church. We want to have an expectation for the miraculous power of God in our church. While simultaneously, we grow in a rest in God's sovereignty to rule the affairs of men. Meaning, I'm, I'm growing in, I want to be healed, I want to be delivered, I want to see my kids have miraculous encounters with the Spirit. And on the other hand, I'm growing in a rest in God's sovereignty that says, God, if you didn't heal my family member, I'm not going to turn away and spit on you and throw a fit. I don't understand. I'm not even happy with it. But I am resting in you working all things together for my good. Now, now churches feel like they've got to choose one or the other. We're going to choose, just don't pray for the sick. Don't, don't lean in for healing. Just trust it. God's going to let it happen whatever God lets happen. And that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith calls us to pray, to lean in, to believe for. But what do you do with the disappointment if it doesn't happen? We've got to rest in God's sovereignty, His goodness, His perfect plan. That There's healing coming one day, no matter what. Are we surrendered to God in these places in our soul?